have one this morning. Sorry, no testimony this morning. Um, but we have been kind of pursuing a question, kind of landing this series and asking the question, okay, we talked about how we love God, why love matters, and then we've been talking about, we talked about last week, how do we love others. Um, and if you want to hear the intro to how you love others, go back and listen to part, part one. This is really a part two, and I'm not going to bother rehashing all the, all the stuff we talked about last week, except to say that love is really important. Um, and the, 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 the main point that we landed on last week was that in order to love others, you need to deal with your thinking. A lot of our love for other people is stopped up. It's, it's you know, that, that, that process of loving others is, is uh, hindered because of the way that we think, because of the thinking patterns that we have. Um, we, we talked about that a little bit last week, but just to go a little bit further into it, uh, Colossians 3, 8 through 10 says this, you, uh, now you also put them all aside, put aside Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In this passage, and I think throughout Paul's letters, and I would say throughout the teaching of Jesus... Uh, there is described a, the process of spiritual growth. And it is a grace-fueled transformation of the person from the old self to the new self. Something going on that we are a part of as we grow spiritually is by grace growing from the old person into the new person. And we're called to participate in this in some way, right? This is what Paul is saying right here in Colossians 3 says in other places, what Jesus says in other places, and it involves, my participation involves laying aside the old self with its corresponding attitudes and practices and putting on the new self with its corresponding attitudes and practices. And you'll notice it's not just a call to act a different way, not a call to put on a show, but it's, it's to call to become a different sort of person. That's the thing. There's, there's a difference between uh, just acting like I love people and actually being a loving person. There's a difference between um, taking off, not yelling at people, right, and loving them. There's a difference between those two things. And what we're called to do, what Jesus made clear and what Paul makes clear, is that we are to act from a renewed person. From the renewal that Jesus has effected on the cross. From the renewal, the new life that we have when we trust in Jesus, right? Because he told Nicodemus in John 3 that he had to be born again. And that means that he had to become a new person. His old self had to die. His new self had to come and take over. And Jesus invites us to be a new person as we put our trust in him. We, we leave our sin behind and he gives us new life. He has done that on the cross. We have to be new people if we're going to be people who love others. As Paul describes it here, this new self is one who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. See, the problem that Paul is addressing here, 
And the problem that we all face as people who want to love others is that sin has had lasting impacts. It has affected our knowledge. It has affected our thinking. And we need our knowledge renewed according to the image of God. We need to become Christ-like. We need to put on this new person that God has made it possible for us to be. But sin has lasting impacts. I've got a little slide here that I think sort of explains the initial problem of sin, right? Sin's impact is, is twofold. Primarily, sin's impact has led to immediate relational corruption. By that I mean, if we look at Genesis 1 and 2, you and I were created to be in relationship. We were created, humanity was created to exist in a dynamic dependence, relational dependence on God. But sin has come into the world, and it's hindered that relationship. It's broken the relationship between God's people and God. That's what sin has done, and that is the primary impact of sin. But it leads to secondary impacts. Particularly in our minds, it has led us to the corruption of our thinking over time. So there's a primary and immediate impact of sin. We're all born into sin. We are all born into a broken relationship, and it's leading us to a corruption of our thinking over time. Dallas Willard, you know, describes the corruption of thinking that comes from our broken relationship with God this way. I, I think he captures the effects of sin, the secondary effects of sin really well. He says this, the problem with flesh, which is just a biblical word for the old person, right? There's a couple different biblical words that are commonly used in Paul and in, uh, in Jesus's uh, words. So the problem with the flesh or the old self lies in its weakness and lostness when uncoupled from God's spirit, which is precisely the condition of humanity apart from Christ. To live in the flesh, to live with uncrucified affections and desires, is simply a matter of putting them in the ultimate position in our lives. Whatever we want becomes the most important thing. This is what happens when we're living apart from God. We make our desires ultimate because they're all we have. We look at them as if they were everything in our lives, thinking of my worth, my glory, my appearance, thinking of my power to sustain myself. The corruption of thinking comes from this relational alienation because we, what we start to do is, is we go through life and we were made for relationship but we are alien from that relationship. We were made for dependency, closeness, reliance upon God, but we are alienated from him because of sin, and so we make our desires ultimate because it's all we have. We don't have this guiding hand of God. We don't have his presence. We don't have his spirit in our life anymore because of what sin has done to us. We cannot trust and rely on him. We don't have the capacity. Sin has robbed us of that. And so our thinking becomes corrupt. We replace our desires, our personal desires, for the ultimate good that we were created to have. And our thinking is shaped accordingly. 
But the good news, and there's good news, is that Jesus came to proclaim and affect that relationship. He claimed to restore it. His death on the cross, the forgiveness of sins bought, the proclamation of grace, the, the, the availability of grace and restoration to all people who would, by faith, trust in him, is proclaimed at the cross. Jesus died. He dealt with the problem of sin. He dealt with the problem of alienation. He forgives any who come to him in faith, and he restores the broken relationship. I think I've got a slide showing that restoration. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, has an immediate effect of restoring the relationship with God. It has the immediate effect of anyone who, who comes to Jesus and trusts him receives his spirit. We receive God's spirit we're forgiven of sins. We can trust in him again. We can hear from him again. We can rely on him again. That happens immediately when we trust. But here's the thing. Okay, so that immediate restoration, right, happens, and it will eventually, the process of sanctification means that it will eventually lead to renewed thinking over time as I cooperate with God's spirit, as I trust in him more. But you'll notice this, the secondary impacts of sin lag behind. You get saved, Jesus forgives your sin, he restores the relationship, but your thinking is still shaped according to the lack of relationship. The secondary impacts of sin are not immediately dealt with when we trust in Jesus. The primary impacts are the relationship is restored. He puts his spirit within you. But you still are called to, and the work of spiritual progress and trusting in Jesus is to reform and renew your thinking. Renew your mind according to the new relationship that God has made possible. I still have, and you still very much have, a way of thinking and living that is stuck in this mode of desire, that is stuck in this mode of a lack of relationship, that is stuck in this mode of uh, self-trust, self-reliance, self-provision. My thinking, just because Jesus has restored the relationship, does not immediately change. That is the work of spiritual maturity. I put myself to that work. That's what Paul is calling the Colossians to put off the old, put on the new. Jesus has given you a new person to be. He's restored the broken relationship, but you have to put off the old and put on the new. You have to start to let what Jesus has done impact your life. Spiritual maturity is the putting off of the old self, the self that is driven by desire or, or lust, which is not only sexual desire, right? Lust is just like wanting something for the sake of having it. Putting off the old self, and I'm called to put on the new self, the one that is driven by love. The one that is driven by trust. The one that is driven by faith. And that is the battle. That is the conflict. That is the work of following Jesus. And that is what we will do this side of heaven. 
that is what we are called to. I think I've got another slide here. Look, this is the situation all of us find ourselves in every day, if we're Christians, if we've trusted in Jesus. It's a little busy. Sorry. <laughs> you, as a person, if you've been made new, right, Jesus has dealt with the, the old self, sin's impact in your life. He's dealt with the primary causes of that, the, the relational corruption, and he's opened up a way where you can finally begin to relate with God again. But there is involved in the spiritual life a turning from this old self, an orientation towards this old self, and this old way of thinking that is marked by, by relational um, distance, self-provision. Like, like what I have to do is I have to start to orient myself towards the good news, towards the gospel. I have to let the gospel, the truth of what Jesus has done, get deep in my heart and deep in my mind, and that will lead to a transformation of my thinking. That will lead to the formation of my mind, my thinking, my desires over time as the Holy Spirit is working within me. He's actually going to change what I want, what I hope for. He's going to change my thinking. But I've got to do this work of turning from the old and putting on the new, of forsaking the way I used to be, my self-dependence, my self-glory, kind of acting in this place where, okay, like the only thing that exists is me and my desires, and turning to this world that Jesus has proclaimed, the kingdom of God, where he's present, where he cares for us, where we can rely on him, right? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says to cast all your cares upon God, right? Because, because my anxious self, my old self, the self in, in, in my flesh is just motivated by a desire to preserve myself. And I have existed, I've been taught to, because of sin, I've been taught to rely on my own self for everything. I really believe in my heart that if anything good is going to happen to me, I need to make a way for it to happen. And so I'm driven by my anxiety. But Jesus says, well, if, if, if God cares for, you know, sparrows and little things, <laughs> the flowers of the field, how much more does he care for you? What Jesus is telling people is that we have to Get our, the blinders off of our eyes and stop thinking as if the only thing in this world is us. And start understanding that because of what he's done, the grace, the kindness, the care, and the relationship has been restored. And if God cares for you, then I can change my thinking, I can put down my anxiety, and I can trust in him. I can live as if it's true that he will provide for me. We get the, the shift in thinking that needs to happen as a result of the relational reconnection that Jesus has affected. But I've got to tell you, that takes thought work. That takes taking my thoughts captive. That takes really thinking about, man, what has Jesus made clear to me is true. And it involves, to put a very fine point on it, it involves choosing. Taking off the old self and putting on the new involves choosing. You are cooperating with God to renew your thinking 
by choosing to put on the new self. <laughs> and, you know, you didn't have that choice until God made a way for you to have that choice. But now you have that choice, and he's calling you to do it. Another little Dallas Willard quote here. He says, The spirit is different from unrestrained flesh with its singular focus on satisfying desire. The spirit is able to consider alternatives. And God prompts us to have an interest in what is better and best. That is where choice comes in. Choice involves deliberation between alternatives with a view to what is best. A conflict between the flesh and the human spirit is the conflict between desire, what I want, and the will for what is best. It is, in fact, the conflict between desire and love. For love is always directed towards what is good and not simply having my desire satisfied. Love is the will to good of its object. To love other people, you have to deal with your thinking. You have to deal with the lasting impacts of sin because sin is leading you to put your desires first, the things that you want just because you want them first. But love, the gospel, the restoration of relationship, frees you to pursue the good for other people. No matter what it might cost you or what you think it might cost you, because you know that God has your back and nothing will ever change that. Knowing that God has restored the relationship frees me to love people. It frees me to take risks for the sake of the good of others. It frees me even to tell people no, though I might want to make them happy. Because I know sometimes saying no to people is for their good. Whereas if I'm just driven by desire... I'm going to just manipulate every relationship and every situation that I have to get whatever outcome I desire. But if I put the good of the other person first, if I put love first, then I can pursue that and trust myself to God. It's a totally different way of going through life. Love is the will to good of its object. That's what love is. Love just wants the good of the thing that it loves. I love how, sim how simple that is to think of love that way. I also love how simple Peter makes the issue of desire. He simplifies it and says this in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You have two things going on in you. You have a calling to love others and to Turn away from desire which wages war against your soul. You have the call to flourish in light of the kindness and provision and grace of God, to trust him with the outcomes and to love other people, to do good to them no matter what, to desire their good and to act accordingly. And you have a call to turn away from these things that are just waging war against your soul. And it all comes down to dealing with your thinking. Because your thinking is going to be formed according to either your desire or to love. 
I've got another little, little slide, I think, illustrating that. It's a similar idea, right? Sin's thinking is driven by desire, which is actually just the corruption of love. Love that isn't properly set on things that are worth loving. Things like money, power, sex. Uh, I don't know, any number of things, right? When you turn things into things that you desire, when you, when you start to use them and you don't consider the good of others as you use them, those are the negative impacts of desire. But love is always the will to good for others. And it interacts with the objects of love for the objects good. You understand the difference? Now, here's what I want to make clear. I think sometimes Christians say dumb things, myself included. Uh, we say dumb things like, oh, you know, any desire is unloving. That's dumb. <laughs> the truth is, sometimes my desires are consistent with love. I can sometimes want things that are consistent with love. Don't think you are called to turn off all desire. That's, that's just not how you were created. In fact, we were created to have desires, but we were created to have desires guided by love and relationship. The stronger thing needs to be love. That's what's important. When love and desire comes into conflict, love needs to win. That's what's important. But don't try to turn off your desires. I think we tried that in the 90s. It didn't go very well. <laughs> Direct your desire according to love. When love and desire come into conflict, choose love. This is particularly true when it comes to, to sex. God wants us to love our spouses and love them well. And so sex exists in the context of the marriage relationship because that's where it's safe and good. It's for the good of others in, that, in those relationships. That's why Christians care about marriage, because commitment matters. And intimacy outside of those commitment, is, it hurts people. It uses people. The same could be true for, for wealth. Christians are not called to be, take vows of poverty, but they are called to use their wealth according to love, not according to greed. Love of money is the root of all e evil. First Timothy 6, I think. Love of money is the root of all evil. Um, that one's in a second. When we love something that is not God or other people, that's the corruption of love. When we use something that we aren't called to love, when we put it first over the good of others and over God's glory, we have corrupted love. We need to change our thinking and we need to have our thinking follow after and be bound to love. It's pretty hard, I think, in our culture to think through the complexity of this stuff. Because we live in a, a land of great abundance. And it is very easy to excuse yourself 
from loving people with your money, time, power. I know. I know it's very easy for me. We live, I, this is an aside. This is an aside. I want to say it anyway. Uh, like we live, I was talking to my dad about this uh, a couple days ago. We live in a culture that is built around politically, right? Our political system is built around maintaining rights. And I'm not saying that's bad, actually. Sometimes rights are good. Um, but when the Bible talks about the political system, actually the biblical political system is sustained by duty. <laughs> Sorry, I have children. The biblical p political system is, is sustained by duty. So powerful people have duties to less powerful people. Rich people have duties to the poor. That's what the Bible says about wealth and riches. Men who, at least in, in biblical culture and time, right? I, I don't want to get into a whole sexism question thing, right? At least in the biblical, biblical society had lots of power. Men were called to look out for women, for vulnerable people, for widows, for orphans. We're called to, as people who are a part of a society, look out for those who are foreigners, we have duties. Your rights are great. I'm so glad we live in a country where you have rights. But don't neglect the fact that God has said you have duties. Duties to love others. Not just feel nice things towards others. But really love them with your actions, with your time, with your wealth. Love is way more challenging of my desires if I really think on it, if I really understand what I'm called to. So, trying to understand, okay, we kind of painted the picture of what's at stake, where we're operating, where our thinking needs to change, and our thinking needs to be led by and, let's say, overseen by love. Love needs to have the last word. That's the shape of it. If we want to love others, we're going to will their good. And we're going to will their good at the expense, sometimes, of our desires. So practically, how does that work? How do I will the good of others? How do I become, because this is the real question, how do I become the sort of person who loves and who acts from love? How do I become the sort of person who acts consistent with love, who when faced with an inevitable conflict between the old self and the new self, between desire and love, chooses the right thing, chooses the new self, chooses love? I do like how, how uh, uh, it's explained in 1 Timothy. Uh, it says this, Paul explains this to Timothy. He says, the goal of our instruction, so he's writing to Timothy about a particular situation, but, but I love this little summary statement. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You want to have love, it comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You want to be the sort of person who has developed a stronger love, a love that is surpassing desire, who will choose love when it's a conflict, conflicted with, with, with my own desire, then you have to do these preliminary things. 
things that you've already invested in before you get to the moment of choosing, before you get to the moment where will is involved. You have to develop a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So let's, let's talk about each one of those. You need a pure heart. And the thing about a pure heart is that it is nurtured. A pure heart is nurtured. Purity is nurtured. Philippians 4, 8 says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellent, if, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What Paul is saying is that if you want to cultivate purity in your thinking, in your heart, then you nurture it through dwelling upon preliminarily good, virtuous, right, beautiful, lovely things, commendable things. You fill up your mind, your ears, your senses with the good, the beautiful, the right. I am not saying that you just have to consume Christian media. I'm not saying you only have to listen to worship and you only have to watch, you know, The Chosen. The Chosen is good. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But there are other shows uh, in the world. I'm not saying that you only need to do that. But I am saying that there is a lot of stuff that you can put in your ears and put in front of your eyes that is totally the opposite of this. And it's just not worth it. Because a pure heart is nurtured. You have to do the work of transforming your thinking, and you do that by immersing yourself in, in good things, in virtuous things. Christians don't have a monopoly on virtue, just like we don't have a monopoly on love. Non-Christians can love. Non-Christians can be virtuous. I don't think they have the capacity to deal with the conflict between desire and love until Jesus renews your heart. I don't think you can able to do that when it really push comes to shove. And to be clear, I just want to say this again. Non-Christians can love really well. Don't, don't go around thinking that, oh, all these people who don't love Jesus are secretly just the worst. The truth is that, that sin, it might be subtle, but it's serious. Like, there are, there are so many people who I know who are just like, I would say, man, they're good people. Like, they love right things, love good things, but it's a desire for the sake of evangelism. No, you guys are the one. But people too, even good people, especially good people, will actually get to this point where they realize there's a gap between their ideal self, the self they want to be, and the self that they actually find themselves being. The gospel is the solution to that, even for good people, people who have their lives together, right? And it's especially great news for people who don't. People have a total mess of their life. Yeah, that's, the gospel is great news for those people. It's also great news for people who, who do a pretty good job of staying on the straight and narrow, but who come up against desire and love. We need to be right there with the gospel for those people. I totally got off point. So you need to nurture a pure heart. You need to nurture a pure heart. You need to put in your ears and in your, in your heart and in your mind and think about good things. You need to memorize scripture. You, honestly, you can read great books. You can uh, 
consume great media. There's some good stuff out there, even if it's not Christian, that will get you focused on virtuous things. There's going to be some stuff that's really terrible. Turn that stuff off. Um, a good conscience, right? So you, you, you have a pure heart and you need to nurture it. You, have a, you need to have a good conscience, and a good conscience is kept. A good conscience is kept. It's maintained. Like a house is cleaned, a good conscience is maintained. First Corinthians 10, Paul says, Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. This is a really, if you've not spent time in 1 Corinthians 10 and 9 and 10, it's a really fascinating little, little chapter because Paul is basically talking about all the freedom that the church actually has. We've got a ton of freedom to do some stuff that even some people in the church thought, oh, I don't think we should be doing that stuff. Paul says, no, no, you're free to do pretty much anything, but let it be guided by a conscience that seeks not my own benefit, but the benefit of others. Do, do whatever you will, but seek the benefit of others, not your own benefit. Let that be the guide for your conscience. Christians, you have freedom. You are not kept in the grace of God by your law-keeping. You're kept in the grace of God by the mercy of Jesus Christ. But you keep your conscience clean before him by actually fighting this battle actually seeking to love others even though you might not want to in the moment by actually seeking the benefit of others you keep a clean conscience and finally a sincere faith we're called to have a sincere faith so a pure heart is nurtured a good conscience is kept and a sincere faith is received it's received the message of the gospel is not, if you change your thinking, God will love you. The message of the gospel is God already loves you. He's died for you. That is the basis for your salvation. That is the, the purpose of our faith. We stand on the promises of God. We stand on his faithfulness. We stand on what he's done. We receive the good news that Jesus came down, took away sin, has changed our hearts, and that is going to change our minds. 2 Corinthians uh, 5 says, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. One died for all, therefore all died, and he died, so that all those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. The gospel is the good news proclaimed that Jesus Christ died on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. And in doing that, he has freed us to love, freed us from our desires, freed us from being stuck in our sin, from this, this, these thought patterns and this way of life that was leading to futility and brokenness and pain for us. He's freed us, and now we can trust in him. We can live for his glory. We don't have to live for ourselves anymore. 
but for Jesus who died and who rose again. We can step into this story, into this truth that Jesus makes clear, and it totally changes our life. And it's so easy to forget, right, to get into this place of, of guilt and shame, of starting to bear and feel guilty about all my failings. But the thing is, Jesus has taken your sin. He separated as far as the east is from the west. He's, he's removed it so far. He doesn't see it. He doesn't count it against you. And instead of that sin, he's actually filled the gap with love. He's set his spirit upon you. And so though you may take a while in this process of changing your thinking, though you may fail along the way, his love is faithful. You were never saved because you were good. You were never saved even because of your potential to be good. You were saved because Jesus loves you and he wants to restore you. And so when you fail, we come back to the sincere faith that we've always been called to, that he died, he died, he made a way, he took away my sin. I don't stand in guilt any longer. He's carried it away. He's given me that new life, a new heart. And so, yeah, I might be slow, and I might have these old thought patterns, and I might have selfishness in me, but I know that that doesn't condemn me because I'm set free by the blood of Jesus. And the more I just think about that and dwell on that, and I think about the fact that I have nothing to fear, I have only him to trust, then I am free to live a life for him more and more. I'm free to put down the idols and the things, my desires and the things that I've trusted in instead of him more and more. And guys, that is the... Um, we have to press into that. We have to press into that. One of the practices that I, that I call you guys to is to every day to examine your life. You know, these become practices. We've got them in the lobby if you don't know what I'm talking about. Take a picture of them. Um, to every day examine your life. And it's not to sit and think about all your failures. I'm asking you to end your days by thinking about the ways that God has been kind and gracious to you. Because that's the truth of the gospel. The faith that we've received is that we have been embraced by, forgiven by God, had our relationship restored. He's taken care of all the effects, the primary effects of sin immediately. Like there's nothing separating me from God anymore. And the work that I have to do is to just keep pressing in and standing upon the truth that Jesus made clear that the sin is gone, it is erased, there's no guilt or shame anymore. I stand forgiven by the blood of Jesus. I am adopted in a son and daughter of the king. And I can go right into his presence. And I can know that he loves me and welcomes me. And my sin is no longer the thing that he sees. He does, he's taken it away. He sees me and he loves me and he pours out grace and he pours out kindness. It's the faith in which you stand on. And so end your day saying, God, where did you show up? Where were you kind to me? 
turn off the thing in your head that says, oh, where did I fail you, Jesus? Because the answer is, is actually you failed him so many more times than you could even know, and so much to the point where you don't even need to think about it. You need to ask yourself the question. The question that is faith is, God, where were you faithful? Where were you working? Where are you leading me tomorrow so that I might live for you and not for myself? Forget about the sin. Jesus has paid the price for it. Walk into new life. And as you do that, pursue love. Let love transform your thinking. And you'll be a different person. Man, I want us to be different. I want to be different. I want you to be different. Not because you're not great. I already love you. But because I actually think Christians too much are like complaining about life and oh, how hard life is and oh, it's just a struggle. Man, life is a gift. Life with Jesus is a gift. To be a person filled with love, to have that kind of hope in the midst of difficulty, that's awesome. And if you don't experience it as awesome, and I'm not saying you don't go through grief in difficult times. I'm not saying that you, this isn't a struggle sometimes. But if for the most part you're just down on life, man, just remember what Jesus has done. It's good. It's really good. All right, I should have invited the worship team up here, but now they're going to do it, and I'm going to awkwardly stall. That's okay. You guys will forgive me. Uh, Lord, thank you so much. Lord, thank you that you call us to love others, Lord, and you give us the equipping to do so. Lord, you deal with the persistent problem, this primary problem of sin, relationship, relationship broken, Lord, like alienation from you, Lord, you take that away and you give us your spirit, Lord, and then you invite us to cooperate with you in this totally awesome and beautiful transformation of ourself. Lord, that is not a heavy burden. Lord, that's just fun. Lord, let us learn to have fun with you as we trust you and as we realize that you're good and gracious, Lord, that you've invited us to something better than what we used to have, which is just pursuing our own selfishness. Lord, we can pursue you and all your goodness. We can love others freely, Lord, because you have our backs in every circumstance. Lord, you turn all things for good. So we are thankful for that, Lord. Lord, would you build us up? Lord, would you call us to a real deep spiritual lives, Lord? Holy Spirit, I pray for everyone here right now that we would no longer look to the old, but look to the new. Lord, even not look to the, to the good things you've done in the past, but we would look forward to the work you have yet to do in our lives. Holy Spirit, get us excited. Give us pure hearts. Sincere faith, Lord. Lord, give us renewed minds. Pour out your hope within us, Lord. Lord, let us be excited to love the world you've put us in, even though it gets crazier every day, Lord. Your gospel becomes, let it become more vibrant to us. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's worship together.